0: I think we emphasize speed and efficiency, especially in our capitalist society, and maybe that's what's drawing people towards loss because they clearly have been really successful, but not in the ways that we often illustrate as the ways to be successful in life. So they kind of remind us that there are many different ways to be and to live on this planet, and running around is not the only or most successful way of being. Hi, my name is Katra and I am the Sloth Crossings Coordinator for the Sloth Conservation Foundation. So my main role is collaborating with concerned community members and the National Electric Company, which is called Issei, to design and install rope bridges for sloths and other wildlife to help them safely navigate the habitat that we share with them and cross roads without having any kind of danger.
1: Can you give us a bit of your like, background and what motivated you to study environmental studies?
0: <laughs> I've always had an affinity for animals. I've always, there's so many photos of me as a little kid just surrounded by these giant dogs. And my friends are always teasing me about snow whiting, which is basically just making animal friends wherever I go. So I've always <laughs> had a really deep.
2: <laughs> hey, that's called snow whiting.
0: It's called snow whiting, if you didn't know. So <laughs> I
2: did not know. Wait, snow whiting is the act of making animal friends.
0: Wherever like you go, whiting. yeah, yeah, just but like snow white. Yeah,
2: didn't Snow White spend most of her time with the the seven? Well, I guess they're not. Can't say.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, they're dwarves. I I think she also had like a bunch of like bird like right. I think in the story, the birds made like the dresses. Yeah. Like
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It could also be I mean it's like in a lot of Disney movies. You can have like Cinderella Ing or uh, Sleeping Beauty ing I mean, I think all of them had like their their animal friends, but um
2: so, yeah, I've, been in, have, so I've been oh snow whiting all my life?
0: You have, exactly. You just didn't have a term you know, for it.
2: It's really empowering
0: know, to have some terminology, you know, it's a really empowering experience. I don't know
2: I don't know how happy I am about this specific one. <laughs>
0: Like yeah, it. maybe not her. Yeah. <laughs> she I'd was a bit young. Like,
2: I'd rather be like Elsa ing my entire life.
0: Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, Elsa Elsa has animal friends too, right? So
2: For sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just people just people she has an issue with. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. No, but it's true. So, yeah, I've I've always been making animal friends, just like I'm sure all of you have. And um, so I think when I was in high school, I started to realize the urgency of our environmental crises that we face today. So I got involved with a lot of environmental groups on campus. And then I was pretty sure that I wanted to study something to do with the environment when I went to Northeastern. And then I had also really gotten involved with theater in high school, so I was kind of between both of those options. I wanted to study environmental studies and theater, but I went in undeclared, so I had a chance to explore a lot of different majors. I went to a lot of information sessions and considered landscape architecture for a little bit, and then um, ultimately decided to study environmental studies and theater, which was a really incredible experience for me because it was such an interdisciplinary program, and I was actually able to take landscape architecture classes and psychology, sociology, political science. And so it was truly a very interdisciplinary major. And I think it really helps me understand a lot of the human dynamics behind environmentalism and the environmental crises that we face today.
2: Are you a proponent that we should be putting sort of more environmental studies as like kind of mandatory into our like K through 12 uh, school programs, public school programs?
0: I mean, absolutely. I think when, and this is something that is, I'll touch upon later, but I think really environmentalism and our relationship with nature doesn't have to be seen as separate. And when you incorporate a topic such as our our environmental crises, or you don't always have to frame them in such, I think maybe people are, are concerned about maybe scaring our youth or having these horrible issues being, um, you know, because environmentalism can be pretty depressing, but really when it comes down to it, we are all so connected to the environment and you can incorporate environmentalism through all of the different topics that are already studied in school, mathematics, science, obviously. I think the burden of teaching about the natural world often falls on, you know, your biology teacher, but really it could be easily woven through all the different disciplines because frankly, it's, it's relevant across the board.
2: Yeah. I don't know if you all saw, but last month, New Jersey was the first state to pass legislation that uh, requires uh, a climate education to be in their public K through 12 schools.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, those are, those are facts. And I know that Obviously, it's a controversial topic in the United States, which um, was and is largely sowed by, by interests that are not necessarily unbiased. So mm-hmm. it is a, a controversial topic in the United States, but climate is so important because it is a truth. It's a reality. And that's what you hope for the next generation is to be able to be comfortable with truth and be comfortable with questions and asking asking the hard ones. So I, I think that's amazing. Yeah, sure.
3: definitely... it's it's crazy how um I mean you you mention it, right? It's it is the absolute truth, but it's crazy that we live in a world where that has become like a political position or like a you know there are people on either sides of that, basically on either sides of facts. It's like um, arguing against gravity or something like that, which is which is crazy. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's that's a part of
2: speak for yourself. Speaks for yourself, not right? Not everyone buys into gravity. <laughs> well,
3: think, uh, we could have a separate discussion about that, but sure. You know, there are different discourses you can go to gravity with and, Yeah,
0: sure. <laughs> no, it's so true, though. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree.
2: Should we... <clears throat> Before we get into, I mean, obviously we're going to want to get into all the amazing work you're doing down there and um, sloth crossings and wildlife bridges and all these super important topics. Uh, But I thought it'd be fun just to sort of start by just uh, reminding everybody why sloths are awesome. (laughs) Which they are. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We could go around and sort of say what we love about sloths. But uh, That would be great. Yeah.
0: I would love to hear your favorite.
2: Who who wants to go first?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, so for me, I think I really like the fact that we have on the back of our sloth shirts, which basically tells about the whole like ecosystem that um, lives on like the sloth's fur and how there's like so many like bacteria and and everything. Basically, like how... uh, just by existing, they're also offering like a habitat to more like biodiversity, which I think is amazing.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we're still coming to understand all of those relationships as well. And there's been some theories about the sloths eating the algae on their fur, but we've never really seen that in practice. Um, but it does seem to be this complex relationship between the fungi and the algae and the moths that fertilize them and how it assists in camouflage. And it's, yeah, it's a really incredible and complex relationship between all of them, which is, I, I love that fact about sloths. It's definitely one of my favorites as well.
2: Also far and away the greatest mating call of all species.
0: (laughs) Oh, I can hear it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean so good.
0: <laughs> like, oh, it's fantastic. I mean, if you're that <laughs> slow moving, you have to let you have to let the others know that you're in the neighborhood. So, you know, how else are you going to let everybody know than scream from the treetops?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's like a it's like it's like um like a tr- uh a a soundtrack on like a B-level horror movie where they just like play, <laughs> play the scream. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <That's>, <laughs> it really it's is amazing
0: oh my it's goodness amazing. apparently it's always d sharp in the key of d sharp Oh, that. <laughs> that's funny. Hilarious. That's yeah so i swear there must be a song out there that's an ode to the sloth and there's a bunch of like d sharps just thrown in there
2: <laughs> yeah i feel like i'm just gonna bang out some d sharps for most of the rest do of it the, do it <laughs> <now>. yeah <laughs> and see if and see if uh if i attract any any, any like squirrels or any other, any form of uh, local wildlife. Um, also, I, I put this in our doc, but if people, a lot of people don't realize the, um, you know, the, the today's sloth descended from the, the giant ground sloth from mm-hmm. millions of years ago. And if, if nobody's ever seen those uh, images of a giant ground sloth, they're like, it's like a giraffe cross with a bear. <laughs> and just this incredibly large animal, but I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, Katra. Giant ground sloths were omnivorous, right? They, they. I believe. Do you, Do you know when in the in the evolution of sloths they became herbivores, or or is do you know anything about? Because I, I believe that giant ground sloths were hunters.
0: Hmm. I honestly haven't heard that, but. I do know that they are responsible for giving us avocados. Did you know that fun fact about them? Really? Yeah, the giant ground sloths were one of the few animals that were big enough to eat avocados whole. So they would consume them and then obviously defecate them. So there'd be lots of avocado seeds. So if it weren't for the giant ground sloths, we wouldn't have avocado toast today. So another reason to love sloths. But I'm not entirely sure. I would actually love to ask my boss about that. And their, their diets, as far yeah. as I know, uh, they, they did eat avocados. I'm not sure about other things, to be honest.
2: Something, something like, uh, there's like a wonderful vision of a giant ground sloth, just like pounding avocados. <laughs> like, the, I mean, if, 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 if anybody hasn't seen them, they're, they're really large. I mean, I think they were upwards of 20, 25 feet mm-hmm. tall. Um this is not like an animal that is uh, similar to any, like it's the height of a giraffe. That's why I mentioned giraffe, but, but in sloth form. <laughs> um. So just the thought of that creature, just going to town and some avocados is kind of wonderful.
0: Oh, most mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. I mean, they are huge. There's a sloth sanctuary here on the Caribbean side and they have a giant ground sloth statue in front. So it does give you a good sense of just how truly massive they were. Um, And then obviously there's conflicting or competing theories about why they went extinct humans being one of them and hunting. And so, but Mm. yeah, pretty fascinating. I mean, they were around pretty recently in terms of uh, they were, you know, only in the last 10,000 years, I think that they went extinct. So it's crazy to imagine (laughs) that those roamed around when we were around. I guess um, a lot of people, I uh, can relate to
3: them because it's different reasons and different characteristics so um and we normally love things that we can relate to as humans um so we like to anthropomorphize them so in, in that sense like i have related myself to that um, the behavior and and kind of the vibes um i've never seen one in real life i'd love to but um the reason i have a warm kind of feeling about them is because um I relate to some characteristics that they have, but also they have been given in, in fiction and cartoons and so on. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's the most common, probably, idea an average person would have about a sloth without ever seeing them or interacting with them.
0: And in so many languages, the word sloth means lazy and it's akin to one of the deadly sins, you know, laziness. Um, and in fact, they actually only sleep... Um, Around eight to ten hours a day. So it's pretty comparable to the amount of time that we sleep. And the way that they move is really more of a a cautious way of moving rather than a lazy one. Their controlled movements help to prevent predators from seeing them because a lot of their predators use vision to see. Um, They have this giant hawk, Mm -hmm. which is called the harpy eagle which used to be a predator for them in Costa Rica. They're no longer in Costa Rica, but they are in Panama and jaguars. They both use their vision um, among other senses, but that's part of the reason why they move so slowly is oh, to it's more stay def- camouflaged.
3: Re- lazy. Sorry, James. <laughs> yeah, I always... It's more like a defensive thing than lazy for them, kind of the slow move.
0: Most definitely. I always think of if you've ever seen the Hunger Games series, have you ever seen the Hunger Games? Um, so you know how Peta he is really injured at one point, and in order to survive, he just uses his artist skills mm-hmm. to kind of paint himself and stay hidden. <laughs> I think that's what the sloth would do if a sloth was thrown <laughs> into the Hunger Games; <laughs> would just hide. <laughs>
2: just wait it out. Pretty smart. Yeah, I, I, I get. I I sort of have a aversion when people, you know, call sloths lazy, and the reason is. <clears throat> The word lazy has a very Mm -hmm. negative connotation in our vernacular. We tend to think of something as lazy as something um, entitled, you know what I mean? As a behavior of, uh, um, it just has a lot of like negative uh, sort of connotation when we talk about lazy people. Uh, It's usually usually an accusation you're making to somebody for not taking care of themselves or not taking care of others, um, not being responsible for their own behavior, all these things. So I think it's like sort of dangerous, not helpful to think of sloths as lazy creatures because that naturally we, because we have that negative association with the word lazy. And really it's just like, I just think of them as they're just not in a hurry. Like they're like, that's to me a different way of thinking. They're just, they're not in a rush. They're not caught in the rat race of life (laughs) that many of us are. And, uh, you know, they, they live in the moment. Like that's another way I think of I think of sloths so just creatures yeah, that you, are all like super right. present.
1: <laughs> yeah, like as cat said, They're very cautious. I think that's a good way, of thinking about them. We're
2: very Definitely. thoughtful.
0: They are very mm-hmm. thoughtful. Yeah, they're very cautious. They're very thoughtful. If you ever see a sloth move, you can see that they're testing the weight. Uh, their weight for each of the branches. They'll grab onto a branch and then they'll pull it down a little bit to see if it'll hold their weight, and then they'll slowly move one limited time. So they are incredibly cautious. But as you said, it really is an incredible survival strategy, and it's been con- incredibly successful for them because they've been around for almost 64 million years. <laughs> so it's clearly I think we emphasize speed and efficiency, especially in our capitalist society. And maybe that's what's drawing people towards loss because they clearly have been really successful, but not in the ways that we often illustrate as the ways to be successful in life. So they kind of remind us that there are many different ways to be and to live on this planet and running around is not the only or most successful way of being. So I also really appreciate that about them. I
2: love that. Definitely. Yeah. So, I guess we that is kind of an interesting segue into um, sort of the, the 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 first topic of talking about the biggest threat facing sloths, um, and you know, talking about this the sort of uh, the the roads and the habitat fragmentation be, because their cautiousness uh, obviously does not. Uh, is not helpful when it comes to crossing a road right um and uh in terms of the 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 sort of risk they're taking every time they do it um do you do you wanna catch or talk more about uh this 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 topic and this issue and why it's such a threat to um to the species
0: oh absolutely i think sloths are really a great focal species. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with choosing a charismatic species or choosing a cornerstone or a keystone or an umbilis species that will have a lot of benefits to a lot of other wildlife. And when it comes to habitat fragmentation, sloths are exactly that species because unlike monkeys or other types of wildlife, we have these awesome, (laughs) we have so many types of arboreal wildlife here, it's incredible. But sloths, they can't jump. So If there's a gap in the trees, you might have seen, if you ever come to the tropics, monkeys that will just launch themselves from one branch to the next tree. And sloths are not able to do that. So unless the trees are directly touching or within about a meter apart, then the sloth will have to come all the way down to the ground, cross on the ground, and then go up to the next tree. And not only is this a huge amount of effort for the sloth, they're actually really not designed for that kind of movement. They have developed a very specialized muscle structure, which is perfect for hanging in trees, which is what they spend, obviously, most of their time doing. But when they have to come to the ground and they actually have to use the muscles that would be responsible for pushing, they have a really hard time, which is why you see all those videos of sloths just dragging themselves across the road because their pulling strength is quite strong, but when it comes to pushing, they're really quite hopeless. Um, So... They are a species that have become incredibly specialized to live in trees, and they're very streamlined in that way. They really have all of these characteristics that make them perfect for canopy life and completely unsuited for life on the ground. And then moreover, when they do come to the ground, they're at risk for being hit by cars or at risk for people or unfortunately a lot of dog attacks that we we get that's one of the leading reasons that sloths will come to rescue centers around here and even if they survive the dog attack is often the bacteria from the bites that will kill the sloth down the line so they are incredibly vulnerable to any kind of habitat fragmentation and that can be seen in the form of roads but that can also be seen among private properties and i think that's something that people don't necessarily think about um, you know how each each property has a house and a yard That's sort of the classic model, right? The house and the big lawn. And you can see that here as well. And every time you clear trees, you're reducing and diminishing these natural biological corridors. So you might not even know because sloths are really well hidden, but you might've had a sloth in your garden. And if you cut down those two trees, then suddenly that sloth is stuck in that one tree. So they are incredibly vulnerable for all of those reasons.
1: One question we had was, How long does it take a sloth to cross the road?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. I was trying to think about that, actually. Um, I have, I guess to put it in perspective, you can take several videos of a sloth crossing the road. I think it probably averages about a minute. Of course, it depends on the distance. But um, yeah, I was filming a sloth crossing the road, and I think I have at least two or three 30-second videos, so it, it can take a while, but that sloth was honestly booking it. That sloth was moving really quickly. It was a male sloth that was trying to get to actually a screaming female on the other side. So he was not wasting any time <laughs> to get over there.
2: And I think this is important to bring up because I think a lot of people believe that, uh, you know, you're not, you're not causing damage to as much. You're minimizing damage in the ecosystem by, you know, kind of building transport through it. Um, you know, and, and you're still maintaining it in that way, uh, and protecting it. But, you know, this is a great example of how building transport through natural habitat, uh, even just a single road or train track, um, which is something we, we were dealing with in Laos a lot on the elephant stuff is, you know, very, can be very, very damaging. Um, and, you know, this is something that's been going on you know for for hundreds of years right thousands of years of building trade routes and um you know connecting people and it's it's a it's a hard one to solve because the sort of the natural globalization of our economy depends on trading routes right and it depends on connecting people and connecting cities so they can exchange goods and services i mean this is sort of fundamental uh of 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 like you know kind of economic growth for a, lo- a lot of the world um and so i think the work you're doing is really smart because you're saying hey it's not about you know we know we can't just stop uh full-on stop row construction we obviously want to minimize it and control it where where we can but you you're you've been doing a lot of work on actually creating new structures for sloths and other aerobial, uh, wildlife to, to cross the road safely, right?
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I liked what you said about thinking about minimizing. That's always, I think, environmentalism in general is just taking a moment to see, hey, do we have any other options? Is there a way that we can reduce or minimize our impact first? But then beyond that, as you said, I think in the tropics, there's, as I mentioned, there's a, so many different types of species that live in trees, uh, sloths being one of them, obviously a very beloved one of them. But there's a huge need for more connectivity between trees that have become isolated by roads and properties. So I think there's a lot of opportunities actually to install rope bridges. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback over the years. And actually a lot of people are reaching out to me asking about rope bridges. And road ecology as a field is fairly new. Um, and obviously it sort of emerged originally with some of the larger wildlife, like moose and bear, and things that cause real issues uh, when it comes to roadkill with people and hitting cars, it can cause obviously human and wildlife deaths. Um, but when it comes to the tropics, our wildlife are a lot smaller, but there's actually perhaps even a greater opportunity to have a crossing structure be important for so many different types of species. Obviously, it's the tropics, so there's a lot of biodiversity. But I think there is a lot of need, and I think it requires Uh, as you said, well, a moment of pause and a moment of thinking how we can compromise and how maybe they can compromise a little bit. So thinking about ways that maybe, maybe we don't need to cut down that tree. Maybe we could put this structure in another place, or maybe we could take a moment, or maybe if we do have to cut this tree, we can put a rope bridge that could reconnect them. We've had a lot of neighbors in the area that have reached out to us after they've had to cut a tree down So, and then obviously on the part of the wildlife, it requires some compromise on their end because then they have to actually modify their behavior slightly and use a structure that they may have never seen before. So it does require some compromise from both sides, but there can be some really inspiring results from both ends.
1: Do you see that the sloths adapt to um, the crossing bridges pretty fast or is it something that has kind of taken a while?
0: Well, <laughs> we actually did have some really exciting news recently. Um, the bridge that you sponsored actually, and Amelia sponsored, um, actually has a sloth using it. And it was one of the first and fastest instances that we've seen a sloth starting to use a bridge. So I guess to put it into context, sloths, they're very slow creatures, right? It's As we've talked about, it's this adaptation that has helped them survive for so long on this planet. And it can take 30 days for a single leaf to go all the way through their digestive tract. And this sloth started using the bridge in less than a month. So it was actually quite fast (laughs) for a sloth. Mm -hmm. So it was really exciting for us to see this sloth. And I got to witness her the other day um, firsthand using this bridge. Um, She had this habit of coming down to the ground and she started using the bridge which was incredibly exciting. So they do adapt, it takes a lot longer and sloths, they're very difficult to capture via camera traps. So that's something that we've been really trying to work on and address and learn from because their movement is so slow, they often will not trigger the camera traps. And also because their body temperatures often very much resemble the surrounding environment, their body temperature can fluctuate almost 10 degrees across the course of a day. They don't trigger the camera traps heat sensors either, so they're incredibly difficult to get on camera. So we're still working on that, but we did get some footage of her crossing the bridge, which was incredibly exciting.
2: Be, a- <laughs> yeah, they'd be the ultimate sleuths. They can't, are the ultimate. Yeah, be detected. Yeah, can't be detected. It would. They would need. They would need a good amount of time for the sleuthing.
0: They would. But, yes. Right.
2: Assuming the time was given, they could sleuth quite well.
0: They really could sleuth quite well. I feel like, yeah, a sloth could totally steal a flat screen TV and you just wouldn't see it coming really. <laughs>
2: uh, let's not give, let's not give anybody the wrong ideas uh, about, about sloth application. Um, I know. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little more about the bridges themselves in terms of just curious, what are they constructed of? Um, how, how high off the ground are they on average uh, for a given road Um, like what, how, how, how much space do you like to have between bridges? Is it like you want to have it every quarter mile, every mile? Um, just if you can tell us a little more about, uh, these crossings themselves.
0: Yeah, no, those are all really great questions. The material that I've seen it. So I've also worked, I've worked in Manuel Antonio and then I've also worked here. So the Pacific side and the Caribbean side, and there are some differences in the two places, uh, which I'll get into in a minute. But the material that we've used on both sides is a nylon rope. So it's resistant to electricity, which is good. It, it helps insulate if it ever does come in contact with an electric wire. And it's very resistant to the elements as well. So it lasts a good long time. And so it's about a two inch nylon rope that you'll tie from one tree to the other. And in Manuel Antonio, they would often have them So power lines have often the wires at the very, very top, which most people will see. It's usually three, and you see them, you know, along the highway in the distance. And then in Costa Rica and then in other places, you'll have electric wires below, sort of. They're a lower voltage, and that's often what they use to connect to your house. And so in Costa Rica, in Manuel Antonio on the Pacific side, they often have the bridges between those two so between the ones at the bottom and then the ones at the top, and I think it was mostly having to do with the conditions that they had there. They didn't really have trees tall enough to be able to install the bridge above, but fortunately on the Caribbean side, we do have some trees that are still tall enough that we can actually install the bridge above the whole power line structure, and that I would obviously recommend that's the most ideal because the risk if you do run the bridge between those two structures is that if they get off the bridge halfway and then they might get on the telephone cables or hopefully not but they could come in contact with the electric wires. so it's it's obviously more ideal if it's at the top of the tree and then moreover the animal doesn't have to come all the way down to the base of the trunk and cross they can use the branches which is what they usually like to use anyway so we have a wonderful tree climber here who's so brave every time i see him climb i mean he climbs like you know 100 foot it's just it's insane he he climbs the tallest trees around here and um so he and he's so dedicated to this project he has been tying the ropes to branches that he thinks would be really great for the wildlife to use so he's been really mindful of installing them in ways that the it doesn't really impede their traffic they would just climb climb up to the branch and then hopefully from the branch go straight to the rope bridge and then the rope bridge straight to another branch. So those are kind of all the best practices that we've been trying to implement. Um, as When it comes to choosing where to put the bridges, the sad news is that there aren't always that many options. Um, as part of my job, I go and I scout locations for bridges across the road and it's a complicated process because there's a lot of different factors that you have to take into account but one of the first factors is just simply the height of the trees. So unfortunately, um, you know, due to human development, there aren't really that many tall trees across the road. So it kind of almost does the work for you. And then beyond that, you have to look at the tree species. Is this a tree that can fall down very easily or has really brittle branches? And because it is a living structure, you also have to think about how you can maintain this bridge in the long term. So you don't want to tie the rope too tightly, otherwise it could cut off the circulation of the tree and then the tree could die or a branch could die. And since these are such precious and scarce resources, we have to really take into account the health of the tree as well. So I hope I hope that answers your questions. There's a lot of things that we're still learning about this.
2: Yeah, no, super helpful. Very thorough. Dude.
0: Building um building the bridges as
3: and um, and getting them to adapt to that is is really interesting and um I guess I was thinking what are some other things that are involved in in field conservation for sloths like what are some other things that are helpful uh, for them right now that um you are trying to implement?
0: Yeah, I mean we build the bridges because there aren't trees, but ultimately trees are the best intervention because they provide Homes, shelter, food. So paired with our bridge building program, we do a lot of uh, reforestation and trying to restore these biological corridors that once existed. Um, But obviously trees are not an instant thing, so it takes a while for them to grow. Um, So in terms of restoring habitat, that's some of the, the concrete measures that we take in place. But every property that we work with, we also do a lot of education And as I mentioned, dog attacks are a huge reason that sloths often end up in wildlife rescue centers. And so teaching people about responsible dog ownership, we have a campaign where we spay and neuter street dogs, which is much more of a problem here than maybe you'd see in other countries. Um, There's a lot of dogs that just wander freely and are scavenging. And if a sloth is on the ground, they would certainly attack them. So um yeah getting the wild and stray dog population into con- under control is really important as well. Um but there's a lot of different and hopefully all the measures that we take will contribute to each other so there's a positive feedback loop. Um but those are some of the the primary I would say that Connected Gardens is the name of the project that we have which is the rope bridging the rope bridge project and then also the reforestation. So that's kind of our cornerstone project and then from there we reach out in a lot of different educational capacities. We also do a great deal of our uh, a great deal of monitoring of sloths directly. We have sloths that are collared in a national park, and so we're coming to learn some of their behaviors and their tree preferences. And that's something that we're also engaging the community with because the more eyes out there and the more information that we can get about sloths, we actually had a really incredible observation by a tour guide in Cowitza, and he observed a behavior that we had never seen before um, and that never really seemed to have been recorded before either. So engaging the community is is so important. And um, that's why beyond just putting up the bridge and leaving, you always need to make sure that you're... Educating people and just really empowering people to become part of this conservation, and people get really excited when you reach out to them and you engage them and explain them. We have a lot of really, really wonderful property owners that we work with that are so excited when they see any kind of activity on the bridges, and they send us photos and videos right away.
3: Um, thanks. Yeah, that um, that was very comprehensive about um, about all the measures that are taking in place today. Because sometimes when um, when you, get, um, when you want to get involved in terms of helping or donating or volunteering, very few people have an idea of what it actually means and what happens um, um, on the ground. So there are a lot of uh, programs to like adopt a sloth, and they even have different names to start donating to them and helping them out. Uh, but it's really good to know um, and have an understanding of what's actually happening and what needs to be done and where the donations are going towards.
0: Oh, most definitely. And we do try our best to give updates whenever possible. So whenever wildlife are seen using the bridges, we like to let our donors know. And we have a whole map of all the different bridges that we've installed and all the different places that we've planted trees that you can browse and it's always being updated. I think it's really, I mean, it's really inspiring for us too to really see and appreciate the full circle of the impact. And obviously it's so important to know what kind of impact your, your money is, is making, cause it's such a generous thing to do. So that's really important to us at Silico.
1: I mean, I think that's a great transition too to like continue talking about, community-based conservation and how important as you're illustrating um it is to to basically make the community a part of the conservation process right
0: yeah absolutely um you had asked about some anecdotes that i uh could share about some of the work that we've been doing with the community and i actually have two anecdotes (laughs) one is about a sloth And one is about a monkey and obviously the communities that we live in. And so I had mentioned briefly that we have this female sloth who's starting to use this bridge in record time for a sloth. So less than a month. And um, so we were so originally the sloth was using the ground to cross between the tree that she sleeps and then the tree that she eats. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of dangers and a lot of risks to that sloth every time she comes to the ground. And although the property that she's on doesn't have a dog, every time she would come to the ground, a lot of tourists would often come up to her. So the property owners were just really frustrated and concerned for her safety. And so they reached out to ask and asked if we could install a bridge between those two trees and with sloths, as I mentioned before, because they're so cautious, because they're so habitual, it can be really difficult to get them to change their behavior. So the best thing to do if you're trying to install a sloth crossing is to know exactly where that sloth lives and exactly where that sloth eats. So the only way to know that is to have the community members really paying attention, and they knew exactly where she was, exactly where she would go to eat, and they were able to give us that information. We installed the bridge, and then as I said, in less than a month, she started using it. So, And that's a huge behavioral shift on her part. So now instead of coming to the ground, she uses the bridge. It goes straight from her sleeping tree to her eating tree. And the other day when I visited, there were actually two three-fingered sloths in the tree, uh, two females. And um, we've installed a couple other bridges on the property as well. So it's it's just been a really exciting discovery and it it couldn't have been possible without the involvement of the community from the moment the bridge was installed to the moment that they saw the bridge being used by the sloth they sent us a video the moment they saw her using the bridge and then we've installed camera traps and and so it was just a really wonderful example and then what who also should really be highlighted and mentioned is our tree climber Gaio as i mentioned before Gaio Adolfo And he is just such a wonderful human being and so passionate about this project. He had a history of cutting trees. So oftentimes, you know, in the tropics, a lot of trees will fall um, and branches will fall. So he would be cutting trees on private properties, but also for roads. and now instead of cutting trees, he connects them for us. And he's so engaged and he's always so passionate. So he's always asking me about when can we install the next bridge? Um, so he's just such he's such an advocate and he's such a wonderful member of the team. So that's the story about the sloth, which is really exciting. And then there's another story about a monkey at a different property. So this is another property. It's called um, Faith Glamping. And it's a place where you can glamp, you know, fancy camping if you haven't done that before. <laughs> And um, so they've kept a lot of the, fr- the rainforest intact, but um, they had a, a troop of howler monkeys that would come to the property a lot. And one time um, the howler monkeys, were, they were trying to get across a gap of the trees. And so a lot of the monkeys were jumping across the gap and, you know, some landed well. But unfortunately, there was a mother howler monkey and she had a baby on her chest. And when she jumped across the gap, the baby fell from her and it hit a stump. Um, and the baby died immediately. And the owners were just incredibly heartbroken. And unfortunately the baby died right upon impact, so probably didn't suffer much, but so it was incredibly tragic. And so they they, they wanted to do something about it. They named the, the baby monkey, Bobby. And uh, so they reached out to us and they asked whether we could uh, install some bridges on their property. We installed a triangle of bridges on that property where that monkey fell and they named the bridge Bobby's Bridge. And as it so happens, and this was a really serendipitous moment, the person who sponsored the bridge, he was sponsoring it for a relative of his that had also died. And so, and it was chance that it ended up being the same bridge. So it's honoring two deaths in a way and honoring those and and remembering those in I think a way that's really positive. So those are two of the stories that are, uh, from our sloth crossings and connected gardens program that were really heart, heartfelt and and touching, I think.
1: Yeah. Those are amazing. I,
2: I also just want to echo, um, you know, in conservation, how, how critical it is to work very closely with, with local communities and it's not just for their support. Um, It's actually you know it's for their benefit um it's you know a lot of it requires education uh you can create you know job opportunities um we see this a lot in uh in in parks and in parts of africa where you know create more opportunities to be rangers and um, patrol people um so there's like job opportunities there's there's benefits to them from you know clean water and things like that by improving uh, ecosystem health um, agriculture growth from biodiversity i mean there's just it's so important that <clears throat> all of us that do work in and conservation remember that the, the 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 you know indigenous people and local people just in general are a critical i mean people are critical parts of ecosystems and need to be factored in to this work and we we do this again in Laos with uh Mandelao, where um you know we were very involved in terms of uh sort of agriculture trade or giving uh elephant dung to local farmers which is a great fertilizer uh employing a lot of local uh uh Lao um Lao people from Long Bong and uh you know so using proceeds to support uh, rebuilding of some of their uh, religious temples and things like that, but it's, it's so, so important to um, work hands-on with the local community, no matter what kind of wildlife conservation work you're doing.
0: Oh, absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think shifting from the Pacific coast to the Caribbean coast, there are a lot of differences between the two, and I've definitely seen a lot in this line of work. The Pacific side has a lot of the luxury resorts and a lot of some of the bigger Uh, types of development that you would see with more large-scale tourism and so as a result that wildlife have been really negatively impacted on the pacific side and the caribbean side largely because the rain it's a lot rainy on the caribbean side so if you want a beach vacation you don't want to be sitting in the rain obviously so a lot of the caribbean side and then for a lot of other historical and cultural reasons has been largely underdeveloped or undeveloped as you would say but it's not so much, as you said, just kind of trying to ward off any kind of development. It couldn't be further from that. It really is about empowering the local communities and forging a new type of development that is in line with the interests of the community and interests of the wildlife, which are often so compatible. So it's, it's yeah, it's, try, it's not trying to stave off any kind of development and, and preventing any kind of economic opportunities. It's having both of those hand in hand and really forging the growth together. So I I completely agree.
1: Well, one of the biggest challenges in general is like incentivizing people to care about the environment and consider it. Absolutely. um, What are ways that people can like basically make people care about it? How do you make people make more conscious decisions to better the environment?
0: Well, it's a really complex question, <laughs> but it's something that I've been very interested in for a long time. As I mentioned, I wrote an environmental theatrical thesis. <laughs> so I was combining my interests of theater and the environment to answer that exact question, because I really felt in college and then in general that often the way that we try to get people involved um, or to get people to care about their environments is through a narrative of guilt and fear And although they might be effective um, or effective in the short term, I often find that they're not effective in the long term. So that's always been something that's kind of bothered me, uh, especially also someone that cares. Um, I think there's also this belief that there's only one way to get people to care about their environments. I think maybe that's why they try to focus on universal messages like, oh, rainforests give you water. And forests and forests help to stabilize our soils. and. But really, I think every person's relationship with their environment is incredibly personal and incredibly personalized. So I think one of the best ways to get people to care about the environment is to get them to consider their relationship with the environment. And for each person, that will be a little different. I remember I had a professor in college who, this was so memorable to me at the time, he was an environmental sociologist and he took one of his classes to kind of explain his personal relationship with the environment and how he really loves to fish and that above everything he loves this fish called the striped bass. And he was explaining how he would care whether the Charles river would be polluted on a personal level because he wants to be able to fish there and he wants to be able to take that fish home and grill it up and not worry about any kind of pollution. And maybe if you're a biker, the Charles River is a beautiful place for you to be able to get fresh air. So every person has a different reason that really, you know, stokes stokes their heart, or stokes their flames, their internal passion about the environment. I think for me, obviously, it was wildlife. So I realized that along the way. And then I was able to frame my work and also how I relate to the environment through that lens. Um, but I think the first step is really just considering in a positive way, what is your relationship to the environment and what really excites you about the natural world? Because there's going to be something different for everyone.
1: That's true. I think considering that like, there is no one universal like approach, but I, yeah, I agree. Like whenever we're able to, I think do more of that reflecting and like, how does the environment, I guess it also kind of is tied to the whole um, idea of like, people try to almost put themselves apart from the environment or apart from, I don't know, the role of earth in general, but it is so intertwined that when we actually do take a moment and stop and think about it, like our decisions or our roles, um, they will impact like every other person and every other creature. So yeah, I agree with you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that is another really important avenue as well. So appreciating your personal relationship with the environment and then obviously all the different ways that we're so linked to the environment. I mean, there's so many amazing documentaries that explain all the different relationships that we have and we could even really be thanking whales for the fact that our climate is being regulated. And so there are all these really unobvious connections that... Um, that we can come to appreciate um, as well. So I think I think, I think
3: there's a, a bit of a, it, it's yes, very beautiful definitely. to think about um, our relationship with the environment and animals in a personal way, but also sometimes the way we build relationships can be very selfish and short-sighted in a way. Um, and I think it's also useful to think about the kind of side effects of us building personal relationship with certain animals or um, everything around us. So um one of the topics that James mentioned as well, the idea of sloth selfies and, and how that um, basically affects the animal. And um, that also kind of gets um, spread through social media and and has um, even a bigger um, kind of, it, it, it draws attention to the animal, but not in the best way possible. So um, maybe you would touch upon this topic and this idea about being very conscious and ethical about the relationships we have with these animals and with the environment, because not always would we consider it as fun or loving um, is the best choice um, for the other creature in a way. I mean, we see this happening with elephants as well and um, tigers and, and other wild animals that we don't understand that well sometimes and can harm by wanting to build a relationship with.
0: Absolutely, I think you touched upon a really important point that there is uh, there there are nuances to it, and if you aren't taking into account the welfare of of the animal or really viewing them as their own independent thinking, feeling creature, then you really can slip into a more ex- exploitative relationship with the environment. And I th- I, I think you're completely right that. And that's a challenge in Costa Rica where it's a country that's famous for ecotourism. So, so many people come here to see sloths, to see all the different types of amazing wildlife that Costa Rica has done a great job of of conserving. But in the same token, that love, yeah, can kind of be misguided and people can get way too close to sloths and other wild animals. And so, um, with regards to sloth selfies, I, I wanted to highlight the fact that not all sloth selfies are bad selfies if you're not stressing the animal out if you're never touching the wild animal and if you're also really thinking if you are touching that animal and you're in the context of a wildlife rehabilitation center or a role that you have to touch the animal taking some good time to think about whether posting that photo would would be for the benefit of the animal could that selfie be misinterpreted um, by a wider a wider audience and then just making sure that those norms are followed by other organizations. So if you're taking a a sloth selfie and you're six to ten feet away and the animal's behavior is clearly not changing by your presence and you're not making loud noise, you're not using flash, if you want to take a selfie, go ahead. That's a good, that's a responsible selfie. But as soon as you see the animal's behavior change, or perhaps you're blocking that animal from getting to somewhere where they need to go, then that is clearly a bad selfie. So I did want to highlight those things. And I think people, people hear stories from organizations saying, oh, well, this sloth was rescued. You know, they, they like people. And usually those stories are false um, in addition to being just really untrue on the part of the sloth. We've hand raised sloths because they've been orphaned. And by the time they reach sexual maturity, they often don't even want to be near people at all. So even sloths that are hand raised often don't want to be near people at all. And moreover, the organizations that are offering sloth selfies or offer a sloth as a photo prop, they probably took the animal from the wild. The mother was maybe killed and it's fueling this illegal petting trade and the ultimately threatening threatening the sloth in the wild so it can seem innocent but there's a whole backstory that i think a lot of people don't quite realize and understand
1: oh yeah like you said like once um a sloth selfie is, is shared on social media maybe maybe you do like say you you explain in the caption like oh this was raised in you know this is an orphan sloth but if people don't dig that deep and read it and they just kind of see the overall picture there's so many assumptions that can be made like this is acceptable um etc so yeah Mm -hmm. it's a good point
0: Yeah, no, it's really true. And in some states, it's you're allowed to have a wild animal as a pet, but just because it's maybe legal in that state doesn't mean that those animals are not suffering or feeling incredibly stressed. Oftentimes, sloths don't really show outwardly a lot of their stress symptoms. Um, I mean, if you ever see a sloth with its arm raised up, it's about to swipe, and it's a very stressed-out sloth. But we have a guide on our website about how to take Responsible wildlife selfies and how to be a responsible tourist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's very important and very helpful because, because um, the I more understand. you
3: edu- educate people about this, the less people you are going to have um who would get involved in such types of activities. Because I think the amount of people who are who know what's happening in are malicious is a lot smaller than the amount of people who just have no idea and would just do something without thinking, really. And um, I guess the question from here is. Um, what are some of the ways that people get involved to support what you're doing your work the organization and in general sloth um as this incredible animals that need our support and help now um can you can you mention some of the ways that we can all kind of be helpful and also share the world to others
0: um well there's three main ways um donating um obviously supporting our work directly Uh, creating awareness through actions and words, and volunteering your skills and time. So for donations, we have a lot of different donation packages on our website, sloth adoptions, all the donations obviously go to support work on the ground if you're interested in sponsoring us a sloth crossing you get a plaque with your name on it and then um, I will send you updates (laughs) about the bridge and why it was installed the story behind why it was installed and if we have any wildlife using the bridge send you those photos and give you the account Um, so there's a lot of different ways to get involved financially Um, but really as you said before education is so important and so if you do. If you have been inspired by any of the messages today or on our website, sharing that information with friends or leading by example are really great ways of, of getting involved as well. So educating people about sloth selfies. If someone is swiping through and they see a really, oh, wow, look at this sloth is so cute. You could explain to them gently, of course, that oh, the sloth selfies are maybe not the best for the animal or, and kind of explain some of the background. And then even just leading by example, if you, cut out uh, palm oil, for example, or try to reduce the amount of pineapples that you eat. Those are two types of crops that directly threaten sloths here in Costa Rica. So those are great ways. And then we are a really small team. So if you do have a special skill or something that um, could contribute to our team, we are always looking for volunteers. Um, So examples would be marketing, grant writing, fundraising. Down the line we do hope to have a formal volunteer program an internship program we can have people help with our monitoring and uh, so have a fully fledged program but um, that's something for down the line but in at the moment if you have any of those skills and would like to support us we would would absolutely love that so those would be ways to get involved
1: That's great yeah there's definitely a lot of ways to get involved we'll we'll be sure to share um, links to your resources as well as like your social media websites um yeah i i really enjoy working with you guys because one i I really value like the transparency that you guys uh hold in terms of like the stories behind and, and constant updates i think that's just really helpful and it also kind of continues like like yeah once we donate you know it doesn't end there there's um like a you you basically hold a space where we can continue a conversation or you can continue reaching out or helping uh, in all the ways that you mentioned. So that's great.
0: Yeah. So if you are, if you do have any expertise in marketing, grant writing, fundraising, you can send an email to info at dot or visit our website and um, you can see all the work that we've been doing there. Great. Well, our last
1: um, little part that we like to do is just some rapid fire questions. So I think we'll start with, what is your favorite book on conservation, climate, or environment that you recommend everyone read?
0: I would have to say Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World by Emma Maris. Such a good Mm. read. Highly recommend. (laughs) I
1: like that. And what is one nature documentary or film or series that you recommend?
0: I think the recent Our Planet on Netflix, I hope it's still there, just completely fell in love with the way that they describe our relationship with the natural world.
1: Yeah, that's a great one. And what is your favorite animal on Earth?
0: Well, oh, sloths, obviously, but I have a lot. It's absolutely impossible for me to choose one animal. I love kinkachus, okapis, tapers, basically all these animals that I have to look up on my phone if I ever tell someone that it's my favorite animal <laughs> because nobody knows what they are. I always have I to just type best. it in They're like, wait, hold on, let me show you. <laughs> That's great.
1: And then last one, what is one behavior change that you think everyone should implement and adopt to either help like reduce their, their footprint or also just in general to try to save the planet?
0: I think shifting from a competitive mindset to a more collaborative one and that obviously includes nature. So not competing with each other and not competing with the natural systems on this earth because there's so many ways that we can all benefit from each other.